Hi, and welcome to Occupy Yourself, the podcast that aims to bring awareness of occupational therapy concepts to all the land. Whether you're a seasoned OT practitioner like me, Nicole, an OT student like me, Val, or just a person living the job of life, we're here as your OT practitioner pals to help you optimize your days through intentional occupation. Just a quick disclaimer, this podcast is not designed to replace advice from a licensed OT practitioner. We're a licensed OTR and a future OTR having a chat over a tasty beverage about ways to occupy yourself with intention and live the best life for you. If you have any occupational concerns that warrant professional intervention, please contact your primary care physician and or an OT practitioner. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Occupy Yourself. This week we talked to Nicole Fidanza. Nicole graduated from Quinnipiac University in 2007 with a master's in occupational therapy and in 2017 with a post-professional occupational therapy doctorate. She has focused her practice on working with older adult clients across the continuum of rehabilitation. Nicole is the program coordinator of the upper division of the BSMOT program at Quinnipiac University. She's also a clinical assistant professor of occupational therapy whose teaching focuses on gerontology, neurorehabilitation, occupation and health, and professionalism. In addition, she leads students through Fieldwork 2 experiences to support the psychosocial needs of older adults in her role as a Fieldwork educator, credentialed through the American Occupational Therapy Association. Her current research is focused on the connection between social participation and well-being amongst older adults. In this episode, we discuss her occupational history, her many different hats and roles, as well as her research in social participation, loneliness, and social isolation. This interview brought some of our common themes to the surface in terms of the role of family, social learning, and harnessing the chaos that comes from the transition process to promote positive change and growth. Also, pets again. You might notice some background noises like the noises of small children, dogs, and some horns honking on a beautiful city day, so we apologize for that. All right, here's the episode. Hi, and welcome to Occupy Yourself. I'm Nicole Cipriani. I'm here with my co-host, Valerie Kutarkovsky, and we have our guest today, Nicole Fidanza. I just want to set you guys up with a little bit of the context of the situation. Um, Val and I have recently kind of completed our midterm. We're about three quarters of the way through our episodes, and today is the episode where Val takes the lead. She is driving today. I'm going to try my best to sit in the passenger seat and like not slam (laughs) on the invisible mom brake Um, because I know she's going to do a great job, Um, and it also helps me meet my goal of interrupting less. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so take it away, Val. Um, Also, a quick disclaimer, if you hear me referring to Nicole Cipriani as Sip, it's just kind of like to differentiate between the two Nicoles so we don't get confused. All right, so let's get started then. Uh, How are you doing today, Nicole? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited um, to be a part of this project and to play another role in your journey, Val, um, as you, you know, prepare to enter the workforce. Yeah, I mean, we're super excited to have you. It's been a lot of fun thus far, and we're excited for today's episode, too. Great. So let's, yeah, let's dive right into the questions, shall we? Let's do it. So when you were applying to colleges and you were deciding what you're what you're going to do for the rest of your life did you know what OT was 
I did know what occupational therapy was. Um, I have an aunt who's an occupational therapist, um, as well as an aunt who's a speech therapist. Um, so I had some insight into the therapy world, although this was not what I originally pursued when I was applying to schools and selecting my major. Oh, wow. Oh, tell us that story. Yeah, so I actually, um, I'm a graduate of Quinnipiac University where I now have the honor of, of teaching um, in the occupational therapy department. Um, I was very interested in mental health um, when I was considering college and, and thinking about my career paths. I wanted to do something mental health based, um, which is funny since OT is such a mental health based profession. Right, um, right. You know, so the parallels are there. Um, but I really wanted to do something with, with psych and, and to pursue that. So I actually, my freshman year um, was spent at a different institution, wonderful, small liberal arts um, institution in Massachusetts. And halfway, about probably halfway through my freshman year, I realized like this psych degree is so open-ended. Like I, I want more of, of a direction. Um, and then I had always also enjoyed the sciences and it was like, why don't you reconsider OT? And I was like, yeah, I, I the more I think about it, like what I was, was hoping to do with this psych degree, I can achieve and more with, with an OT degree. Um, so I ended up making the, the, I jumped ship, I transferred and, and went to Quinnipiac and the rest is history. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So when you came to Quinnipiac, did you have your sights set on like, I'm going to graduate with my OT degree and I'm going to get into mental health? Or did you not really have that idea yet? Um, I, I did. I wanted mental health and I was actually leaning more towards pediatrics, which is funny for those who know me as a clinician and as a professor, since I have shifted to the other end of, of you know, the spectrum in terms of, of human development. But yeah, I had really liked mental health at the time when I did my capstone project. Um, the capstone project was different than it, it is now, but um, my capstone project was based in mental health. My fieldwork level two was my first, my first fieldwork level two was mental health, and I absolutely loved it. Um, but then I went on to have two other incredible fieldworks as well. And after every fieldwork ended, I was like, this is where I want to be. And I just loved everything. Um, I don't want to say accept the peds, but the peds was actually my least favorite by the time mm -hmm. I was done. And it's funny because I entered thinking I want, you know, the pediatric right. mental health realm. Um, and I transitioned away from that, but I feel like the mental health piece is a part of an OT's role, no matter where we are and no matter who we work with. Yeah, um, so I that piece agree. is is never gone um, from from my practice. But yeah, I ended up falling more in love with the older adult population. And here I am. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I know that when we were in school, all of the professors always told us that everyone came in with the idea that they're going to be a pediatric OT, like this, this and that. And then over the five years, it completely changes. So obviously, that's what happened to you, too. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, and, and I use that experience. Yeah, awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the hats that you have now, like some of the roles that you have in OT? So in OT, um, my, my full-time employment right now is a clinical professor. Um, I'm a clinical assistant um, professor um, at Quinnipiac University. I had been in the 
clinical world um, for over 10 years working across the continuum, acute care, subacute, long-term care um, primarily um, in the same geographic area. So in many cases, I would see the client in my full-time gig in the hospital and then on the weekend in the rehab facility, they would oh, have wow. been discharged and they're like, hey, you're here too. Um, so <laughs> I, I worked that circuit for many years and, and started my, my teaching as a part-time faculty. Um, but for the past Almost four years now, I have been full-time um, in my clinical assistant professor role. Um, and that, even that role has many different hats. Um, so there's the, the teaching piece, the instruction piece. There's also the advising piece, getting to work with students and help them plan their, their path and make sure that, that they're secure as they're progressing, um, which has been I don't want to say more demanding in the recent year with with all of the COVID-19 issues, but, you know, students definitely need support um, in different ways compared to a few years ago. So there's that piece. There's also the advising piece to I advise student organizations um, within our department and within the university. So being the go to for for student organizations and they align with with my interests. Like so for one example, I'm the faculty advisor for the old friends and new club at Quinnipiac, which is an intergenerational organization that pairs up QU students with older adults out in the community. So I'm able to use my my passions, you know, from the clinic to carry over into my teaching and, and into some of my service. Awesome. Um, so so that's my biggest one. Um, I, I do some per diem work. You know, I try to you know stay stay relevant out in, in the field. And something else that I've started doing over the past few years is I consult with a local, I'm a consultant for a local law firm um, oh, who wow. needs, um, yeah, so they do a lot of workman's comp cases and when they need an OT to come in and maybe do a home modification assessment or to look at what might this person need. Um, so that's been really interesting. They sought me out yeah, um, and it's been another, fun way to use my skill set and to make a difference. Wow, that's awesome. I didn't know that. All the hats. Thank you. Yeah, all the hats. Lots of hats. <laughs> Lots of them. Um, so I know that as part of your role as a professor, you also um, do some research with your capstone group. So I, I know in our talk a few months ago, you were telling us a little bit about it, but can you tell us a little more or if you have any updates? Sure, so I am very fortunate um, to focus my my scholarship on older adults in the local community. Um, so I work with a site out of New Haven, Connecticut called The Towers. Um, the Towers is a senior housing complex. Um, they house over 300 older adults. Um, and it is a senior housing complex, so it is not a healthcare facility. It's, it's essentially senior apartments, um, but they do offer um, services to these older adults who reside there. So I've been lucky to use that site and they're they're wonderful to me and I take students and we do different types of research projects and we develop programming for them um, just to, to better the lives of, of the residents that they serve. So my, my research has really been focused on social interaction and social participation as an occupation um, of older adults. So a few years ago, I did a study there that we looked at what is social participation like on a given day um, for these residents. And that was very telling in terms of, 
you know, the, the interactions were really, we, we deemed them superficial, spontaneous, and short. Mm. Um, and that, that people weren't really connecting with the, the, their neighbors and the people that lived across the hall or the people that they would see, you know, in the dining room. And, and they were telling us that their friends were, you know, from, from years back or their friends didn't live here per se, like they lived in their old neighborhood or, um, and we had identified that when someone moved into the facility and they first rented that apartment, that was a critical window to help connect them socially. Um, at the time, there wasn't a lot of outreach to new residents. It was just like, okay, here's your keys, you know, um, right. the, the, the place is yours. But there wasn't a lot of outreach to help connect them to their peers. It almost reminds me of like going to college or yeah. going to high school. And, and when you, you don't have some of that facilitation, um, so we've worked with them to create some some programs and to put some systems into place to to make that transition easier, um, easier for the resident. We've also developed um, uh, an intake assessment for new residents specifically to allow the site to get to know them better. So we have an occupational profile that's being done on every new resident who moves in to get a sense of who is this person? What do they value? What are their interests? What's their story? Because that's really crucial to help us make those social, help to bridge those social connections and also to provide that, that resident-centered approach right. that, you know, even though they're not a healthcare facility, they still pride themselves in knowing who their, their residents are. Um, so that's one part of the assessment. The other part, we looked at the concept of, of frailty, um, you know, the, that clinical syndrome seen in older adults that puts older adults at higher risks for things like falls, hospitalization, you know, even, right. even death. Mm -hmm. um, so I put an OT spin on those five concepts of frailty. Um, and we have an OT um, doing this new resident assessment when someone moves in looking at their physiology or their nutritional status, um, their self-care status, their psychosocial status related to depression, their cognitive status, and their physical function. So looking at their balance and at their strength. So when these residents are moving in, we're getting to know who are you as a person and then let's see, you know, are there any risk factors that you may or may not even know about? Right. Because the majority right. of these people are moving in and they're living alone yeah. um, and they're deemed independent, but yet they might be flagging, you know, like their balance may be at risk right. or their cognition may be at risk. Um, so the site has deemed it the proactive partnership mm. model. So they're using it to attract new residents like mm -hmm. you know we're going to facilitate your your well-being and you know to promote your health so we've created that assessment using um quick and valid tools that are already existing that right. ot's have in their toolkit so it's a quick and dirty thing but it's giving us really important data yeah absolutely um We've also worked on creating pathways. So if someone is flagging, you know, if we've identified you as a fall risk, mm -hmm. these are the things that we can do to help you. Yep. Um, these are some of the programs that we currently offer at the site. Um, these are some other things to consider. So that work has been happening over the past few years. And I love this project because it keeps just unrolling. Yeah. Right. Um, and giving, yeah, and just, it's like organically just giving me and the students more ideas. Yeah, yeah. So my current students are working on a branch of this project and 
they are creating educational handouts. So if a resident is assessed and they flag in an area, here's a handout in, in terms of what does that mean? So this is what just happened. This was your score. This is why it's important. These are some red flags that you should be looking for. This is what you should be doing. Um, so they've spent the past academic semester, so the fall semester, kind of doing the background and the lit review kind of preparing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this current semester, they've actually been researching health literacy and creating the drafts and revising the drafts and you know, being really considerate of what type of language, is it an active statement? Is it a passive statement? Right. What's the grade level and the readability? Um, you know, the image that we chose, is it appropriate? And does it convey the message behind what, what we're looking to educate? That's so, so really diving deep. Oh, go my ahead. first interruption. <laughs> How? Hold on. No big deal. Hold on. I made it. Fourteen minutes. <laughs> wow. That's nice. Um, but I, what I was just going to say is that's such an important thing because even you know I work in pediatrics. I work at a school, and when I'm working with field work to students as well, like it's so important to kind of understand the the design of the handout. Like you've got the information. It's based on. Yes. based on literature and research and all of this stuff but what kind of like exactly what you just said what kind of language are you using it is it at a grade level that your reader is going to be able to understand but then also like are you designing it in a way that's like visually accessible um you know thinking about just thinking about all those things that you might not um necessarily get a chance yeah. to talk about within the the classroom the ot classroom but these are like yeah. real um modifications to things and considerations that you can make to to project Absolutely. so I love that yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. even things like what is the font right what is the font size yeah. you know yeah. let's use bullets instead of like a paragraph right. that just overwhelms the like visually overwhelms and is cognitively mm -hmm. overwhelming mm -hmm. so um they've made several drafts and we've been going back and forth with stakeholders at the site yeah. to get their input yeah. Um, and the next step in the project, um, actually next week we're meeting and we're going to have a panel, a focus group with some older adults who are going to give us their take as you know, older adults who may be reading it. So yeah. um, it's really exciting to watch it come together um, mm -hmm. and to see them kind of master the experience and to know that our final deliverable for the site will be files that they can print and hand out whenever they need to. Um, to help educate the resident on this is why it's this is why we're doing this. This is why it's important. Um, this is what we want to do to keep you healthy and to you know maintain your quality of life. Right, absolutely. Um, in my research prior to our interview, I was doing a lot of research on social isolation and loneliness, and you said yes. something in our meeting that was super insightful. So, you you'd probably say it better than me. So what is the difference between social isolation and loneliness? Oh, that's a great question. And especially in the world that we've been living in for the past year. Yeah. Um, so they are often used interchangeably, um, but they actually are two very different concepts. So loneliness is that subjective feeling, um, right. you know, in terms of feeling disconnected um, or, or, or feeling alone. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, one can be, one can have plenty of social connections, but still feel lonely. Like they don't have a quality connection or, or that people aren't understanding them. So loneliness is more of that subjective feeling. Whereas social, social isolation is more of an objective concept. Social isolation can be measured and there's scales that are out there that, that can look at someone's social isolation. 
There are loneliness scales as well, but they're very much subjective. It's hard to pinpoint, you know, levels of, of loneliness. It's a subjective feeling. Whereas social isolation really looks at the number of social contacts that someone has, the frequency, the duration of those contacts, um, of those contacts. So someone could be isolated and lonely or not. Someone may have plenty of social contacts and frequent contact with people, but still feel lonely. Um, So two different things, both are considered social determinants of health. Um, Even pre-COVID, there's been a lot of buzz in the literature um, focused on social participation and focused on, you know, the the negative, the lack of social participation. Um, You know, there's, there's statements out there that equate social isolation and or loneliness to as big of a health risk as smoking cigarettes or obesity. Um, and, and most lay people don't realize that. I think, if anything, what we've lived through with COVID-19 has opened people's eyes to the importance of, yeah. of social participation um, and the impact that that it can have. And it, it's interesting, my, my, my initial research was on social participation and that's still the core of, of what I'm doing, but now it's looking at the bigger picture and how those concepts impact social participation. So for many older adults, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, because they have been isolated and you know not as active in their communities and you know isolating at home, we're seeing not only social changes, but we're seeing cognitive changes. We're seeing changes in strength and in balance. We're seeing some functional decline um, with self-care. Um, we're seeing depression, um, which is another level of that. Um, so it's all interconnected yeah. um, and m- more so than I think people realized until more recently because of what we've lived through. Um, right. it, I think this has been an issue for older adults pre-COVID, but now it's an, an issue for almost everyone. Yeah. And also what I found in my research, like you were saying that there are cognitive effects, physical effects, but something else I found is that loneliness can actually weaken an individual's immune system and make them more susceptible to infectious diseases so now with covid and everything this research that you're doing is more important than ever so yeah thank you and they they, they're actually saying there's literature that's that's saying that there are two pandemics there's the covid19 pandemic and then there's this pandemic related to isolation um and potentially loneliness and, and that lack of social connection that everyone has experienced um and the ripple effect that that will have right so what can we as OTs do in order to prevent social isolation and to increase social participation in, in uh, the elderly or the geriatric population? Yeah, so I think it, we have to consider the setting that one is in. If, if an older adult is still residing in the community yeah. and, and more cognitively and physically able um, to be out and about, that opens some doors. Um, If an older adult is more cognitively and or physically impaired and potentially living in the continuum, so an assisted living all the way to a dementia unit, you know, there may be less opportunity to engage socially um, once someone, their living situation changes. Mm -hmm. I also think we need to look at what type of person, is is this a social person at baseline Mm -hmm. or are they more of an an introvert? You know, some people only have one or two quality relationships and they are not lonely and they are content. And, you know, so going back to that, we don't want to just go. I was just gonna say going back to that occupational profile. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at who is this person, 
um, you know, definitely the profile of like, what, what did, what did you do to socialize before? What did you engage in? Oftentimes socialization was linked to employment or was linked to leisure pursuits or educational pursuits. Um, so as OTs, we're taking in all that information already. Um, but I think moving forward, especially in the post COVID world, it's going to be linking that, like being more explicit, talking about social participation. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, the impact, looking at the impact, talking to the, the client about the impact that it might be having. I think a big thing for, for OTs in general, whether it's in the community or potentially in a, a skilled nursing or a dementia unit, we have the skills to help create programs that can foster social connections. So I think we go into program development thinking about that just right challenge for cognition, for physical function, but I think we also wanna be thinking about the social piece and let's design an activity or a program that's gonna get people connecting and doing things together. Um, but also let's, let's think about that just right challenge of if someone wants to be really social, great, but even if them just participating once or twice, maybe that's enough um, based on that person. Um, so I think this is an untapped area for us. Um, something, something that led to my initial research on social participation, I worked in a, a skilled, first in skilled nursing facilities for, for many, many years. And, you know, the bingo calendar, the, the activities calendar that, you know, maybe looked robust to the outsider, but when you're in the facility, nobody's going, or it's the same small group that's going and they just sit and it's almost like kids and like parallel play. Like they're in the same room together, but they are not connecting at all. They could be sitting next to each other and, and not connecting. Um, so how could we structure these programs to, to get people connecting, to, to get them to share information or to laugh about a topic together or to, you know, reminisce about a topic together or to work together on, a, on an activity. So I think we want to be more conscious about that. And, and that's something that at the Towers that we've been doing is trying to build in these, these events um, and programs that are going to connect people versus like you can just show up and sit and, yeah. and be siloed. Yeah. Um, Right. I know that in my level two, my first level two field work, which was my mental health field work, um, I was at a, a facility similar to the towers. And at, the first thing we did was we sent out a needs assessment and we kind of like asked uh, the residents, what do you guys want to do? What kind of groups do you want to see? Exactly. And, yeah. And we got a lot of response back and then we took, we went to work and made groups that they wanted to participate in. And at first, slowly but surely, people started rolling in. And they loved our groups. They would come to our groups twice a week. And at the end of it, uh, one of the residents was like, guys, like, if it wasn't for you, none of us would, we would all be sitting in our rooms. Yeah. Like, we wouldn't even be together. And, and, and that is yeah. great. Yeah, oh, I know. That makes me so I, yeah, happy. It, it really made my heart warm. It was great to hear. And I think yeah. that's another part of it is, you know, whether it's at a community center or, you know, the dining room of a skilled nursing facility, getting the input of the participants, like what, what interests you versus like, right. we're going to tell you what we're running right. and you can take it or leave it. Right. Yeah. Um, because we know that everyone has their own leisure interests and hobbies and, you know, things that's, that spark them like, oh, I want to go to that. Um, mm -hmm. So we want to capture that versus offering, you know, 
a calendar of events that may not engage them because if they're not interested right. in the topic, they're not going to go. And if they're not yeah. going to go, they're they're losing that chance to socialize yeah. um, and to connect. Yeah, good point. So to kind of switch gears here, but not really. So you were my neuro professor when I was at Quinnipiac. So how does your knowledge of neuro play into your research in the social participation in the geriatric community? Well, so yes, my, my two roles when I was practicing and then as, as well as in academia, my passions are older adults and neuro rehab, um, particularly neuro rehab of adults and older adults. Um, so I think a big thing to keep in mind is that while neuro, you know, neurodegenerative, neurocognitive issues can, can affect people of, of all ages, um, we do see a lot, if you were to look at the past medical histories of older adults, you're going to see, you know, a potential, a history of something to the point where it's hard to, to see what normal neurological aging looks like because the majority of older adults have some sort of diagnosis in their past medical history. And whether the OT has a chart to see that or they're, you know, I tell my students antennas up, mm -hmm. you know, we're always watching, we're observing, we're mm -hmm. thinking like, what could that be? Like, what am I seeing? Like, what might that be? Um, so maybe you don't know anyone's history and you're meeting them for the first time, but you're observing something and you're, you know, your antenna are like something is could be going on. Like, I think there, there might be something mm -hmm. in this person's history. Um, so I think recognizing that, yes, we have our, our typical aging, but for, for many older adults, they do have something, they do have past medical histories that often include something neurological. Um, a big one is, you know, potential cognitive, um, you know, dementia, whether it's Alzheimer's or another type of dementia, even the mild cognitive impairment, um, being able to recognize that, that clients may have a, a variety, if we're planning a group where we want people to be working together and socializing, that clients are gonna come with us, a continuum of cognitive abilities. So again, that just right challenge and being able to upgrade, downgrade, sometimes in the moment, like you might not right. know who's coming to that group, but being able to recognize like so-and-so may need a, an extra cue, or mm -hmm. I might need to ask this type of question, you know, versus this type of question. Right. Um, same thing with, with physical abilities. Um, you know, you, if you have a set group with set participants, you know what to anticipate, but if it's an open, you know, group and you just want people to come and, and participate and socialize, you have to be prepared for upgrades, downgrades, um, and in between. So I think that my neural background has given me a sharper sense of being able to detect some of these things mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to be able to quickly think on my feet in the moment to match that just right challenge. Because essentially that's what you're doing in your traditional eval and intervention, right. you know, in a yeah. rehab setting. Yep. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So for the listeners that might not know, what is an OT's role in a neuro rehab setting? Oh, goodness. So the <laughs> OT process of screening, evaluation, intervention, discharge planning, you know, that takes place no matter what client, what health condition, what setting you're working in. Um, and I think for OTs that work with, with clients with neurological conditions uh, of any age, um, we can be found in a variety of settings. I started my career in, in a hospital um, and we were pursuing at the time, this is where my love of neuro really started, um, 
what started as a student, but it really grew. We were pursuing at the time um, um, primary stroke center status for that hospital. So what that would mean was if a client, you know, if the EMS or 911 call was placed and we were suspecting a stroke in that client, that they would be brought to our facility and we had procedures and protocols in place to get them scanned as quickly as possible and, you know, potential medication mm-hmm. intervention as quickly as possible because time is brain. You may have yeah. heard of that statement before. Yeah, right. um, the longer, yeah. you know, the longer the brain may be under duress, the potential for more damage. So. I learned a lot Um, and early rehab, you know, once the client was somewhat stable, they were getting PT and OT and speech in there as soon as possible. Um, So that's really where my my passion started. Um, But so the acute care is when you're seeing the client at their their sickest, it's likely the the you're the first therapist Mm -hmm. that they're going to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're may, they may or may not be realizing the extent of their deficits. It's, you know, like this just happened. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like 72 hours later, 48 hours later, there you are, um, as their therapist. But there's also the rehab side where they're stable, they're out of the hospital and, you know, they're in either a subacute or an acute rehab facility based on their needs. Um, there's home care, there's outpatient. So we can work with clients with neuro conditions across that continuum. Um, and I guess it's really, how does the OT differ? Cause when you're in the hospital, you're not necessarily cooking a meal or practicing folding laundry or, you know, balancing a checkbook. Um, whereas if you're in home care or an outpatient, you know, the client may be more prepared for that. So I guess the OT process won't change, but the focus of the intervention will will differ a little bit. Gotcha. So what are some of the diagnoses that you may be working with in a neuro rehab setting? Um, Stroke is a big one. Um, Brain injury, whether it's acquired or traumatic, spinal cord injury, any of your neurodegenerative conditions like a Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, Huntington's. Mm-hmm. So it's really a variety of, of conditions. <clears throat> but in the hospital, what I typically would see was a new diagnosis. So a client who had some sort of injury and it's a new spinal cord injury or a new brain injury, a new stroke, um, or it could be a complication and they end up back in the hospital. Right. Um Okay. So I, I know for me that I really found a love for neuro in, especially in my field work when we had it, uh, our grad year, I was at, and no, probably shouldn't have said where I was, but it's okay. I'll cut it out. But for you to have context, I was like, okay. <laughs> um, you were in an acute rehab yeah. hospital. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was in an acute rehab hospital. And one of the uh, one of the clients we were seeing um, had just come in. She was fairly new. She had a pretty bad fall down the stairs and had uh, an ABI, which is an acquired brain injury. Um, and she had a history of drug use and drinking. And we were treating her for an ADL session. Um, and the therapist was holding her hand to teach her how to brush her teeth. And it was all like guided passive range of motion and when the therapist let go to let her do it on her own she kind of took it in her hand and started smoking it like a cigarette and so we had just learned about 
that in class about, oh, oh my god, what, I had it written down. <laughs> what, what is the actual term for it? Apraxia? Apraxia, yes. Apraxia. We had just learned about it in class, and then at, in class, yeah, you're sitting there, you're learning, you're like, okay, yeah, I can memorize all this, I can apply it, but when you're actually seeing it in person and it just clicks, that that was the moment where I really was like, hmm, maybe... Maybe neuro is for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's a great point that, that clinical education, fieldwork education, whether it's for neuro or any right. other concept that students are learning in the classroom, to see it in the real world is is that aha, like right. that light bulb moment. Yeah, absolutely. And going off of that, I was wondering if you had any aha moments or stories when you were a student or... Oh, my. Um there's been so many, um, you know, good and bad. Um, I actually, the, the biggest aha moment that, that comes to mind was a misstep of mine. Um, and oh. I share this openly with, with students in, in my classes when we talk about this topic. But when I was working um, in the hospital, I was working in a more urban area. Um, clients did not have a lot of socioeconomic resources. Um, you know, I was this brand new OT. I was armed with all these great ideas. And I remember talking up all this adaptive equipment and things, you know, like when you're discharged, we'll make sure that we get all this in place. And, you know, you're, I really got the, the client jazzed up and like, oh, you know, like I, I'm going to be able, like, I can do this. Like if I have like, you know, because I wish I had things to show and um, you know, then turning around and going to the discharge planner who was like a seasoned vet who was like, okay, you know, um, mm -hmm. and to have her say to me, like, did you check, did you even look at their insurance? Like none of this is covered. Like yeah. they have to mm -hmm. pay out of pocket for this. Yeah. So she's like, you need to go tell them that, like all these things that you just promised, they have to pay for. So having to go back in there and, and share that and to say, this is how much a tub bench would cost. This is how much, you know, it, it was really sobering to watch their face like fall and be like, I right. can't afford that. Like, so what does that mean now? Like if I was gonna go home and be okay with this tub bench, but now I can't afford it, like how am I gonna bathe? Like, right. so it was very humbling, um, you know, and it was more an aha about the system. Exactly. Cause it's mm -hmm. like, we as OTs have so many ideas and we're creative and, you know, we're, we're passionate and we're client centered and that's great. But the system, we have to remember what system we're working in. Um, and I don't want to say that the system dampers that, but we do have to recognize like payer sources and, you know, law, like there's, there's all these levels beyond just our ideas. And even though my intentions to help were there, I totally, you know, set that client up for, you know, emotional upset when, when I, and I did go in and provide resources, you know, there's a lending closet, right. you know, out of this church or here's some other ways you can find, but it's not the same as being like, oh, like, you know, like we can get you this right. and, you know, assume the resident believed me and, and assumed that, you know, that what I was saying was, was factual. So that was a big one. Yeah. Um, but I think there's also like, it does speak to like, there's imagine if the system was working for that individual, like imagine going back to that story and how happy and confident that individual would have felt going back home and having like, you know, the proper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, equipment. it's, it's not a perfect system, yeah. you know, and in, in the older adult world, you know, Medicare, mm -hmm. you know, CMS, they dictate yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. They dictate 
what we can, who we can see, how often we can see them, what we can bill for. Um, I just gave this lecture um, in class not too long ago and you know, students don't really, like Medicare isn't that much of an exciting topic to, you know, students. Um, you know, it's it's dry, many find it boring, but it, it's what dictates yeah. our, our practice in many, many yeah. ways. And the private insurance companies often fall in line yeah. with whatever Medicare puts forth. Um, so it's not just an older adult thing. Yeah. What's happening in the Medicare world is gonna trickle down um, Absolutely. and affect others. Absolutely. So. So yeah, it's it's there are things that we want to be be paying attention to. Um, going back to the neuro piece, having insurance dictate how often we can see someone versus you know if we think they need sixty minutes a day, but insurance is only going to pay for thirty. That's a big difference. Um, so again, being able to recognize the constraints of the system. Um, and if anything, it focuses, it forces us as, as therapists to make the most of what we get, especially if the system is kind of limiting, whether it's the number of visits or the, you know, um, the duration, the frequency, all of that. Yeah. It's like that in all areas. It's not just neuro, like you said, it's everywhere. Yeah, it is. It's, Schools, it's everywhere. Outpatient clinics. It's yeah. Yeah. There's, it is, it's, it's the system. I'm meeting with um, a woman named Kathy McNulty out of the UK on Wednesday who's developed um, a program she's calling Feral OT, which is just like free range OT, like doing, you know, trying to kind of step outside of the constraints of the payer systems yeah. and, and all of that. And really excited to hear more about her work. But anyway. Yeah, I'm excited yeah. just by that concept, right? especially... You know, in the neuro world, when, when you're working the acute, subacute, you know, like home care, like there's a lot of, you know, red tape yeah. and there's a lot of structure that you have to follow. So the idea of being able to go a little rogue, yeah. you know, for the benefit of the of client course. sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to kind of bring it back a little bit. So how important would you say is the role of insight? in neuro rehab so the patient having insight into their diagnoses that's a big one um and in some cases as a result of the area of the brain that's been injured you know right. insight may you know be temporarily or you know potentially permanently impacted um but really it's crucial for the client to be able to understand their deficits so they can then understand what you're trying to do to either remediate or to compensate um, for those deficits. Um, it also helps them to understand like, you know, you maybe you have high muscle tone and that's why your hand is starting to, you know, curl into this flexed position. So being able to process like what's what they're experiencing, like the pain you might be feeling is because this is happening, um, you know, to your muscles when when they're they're tight or, and when they're not being ranged um, or, you know, the, the visual any of the neuro impairments. And, and the thing with neuro and that's why I personally love it is the nervous system is responsible for just about every element um, related to function, whether it's motor skills, sensory skills, cognitive abilities, um, you know, you name it. Um, 
And, and I find that fascinating. And I love that every client is unique. It's not that cookie cutter, you know, like total hip and that's not to rag on total hip replacements. Right. You know, they're wonderful, but that, that approach to eval and intervention is, could be very, you know, similar. Whereas in the neuro realm, you sometimes don't know what you're walking into on a day-to-day -day basis. I like that element of it. I like having my antenna up and, and being able to, you know, like what's the challenge today and, and where, where are we today? Um, but it makes it that much harder sometimes for the client to have insight. The more they can understand, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with regards to client education yeah. and Maybe if it's not a handout per se, but even if it's just oral, you know, communication and, and conversation where you're educating the client, you're educating their caregivers, like this is what happened, this is why it happened, this is what we're going to try to do about it, that makes a huge difference. Um, and that gets in. So I do think we play a role. I'm, I'm, Go I'm, ahead. Good, I'm down a slippery slope, I was just going to say, and that gets mm -hmm. into that, um, that occupation of health management. Right. Yes. Yes. I love that that was more clearly yeah. outlined in the most recent framework document. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some neuro issues may be chronic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some are definitely progressive. Some may stabilize over time. But even if I'm thinking not neuro and I'm thinking of some of the big chronic conditions in adults, like your diabetes, your congestive mm -hmm. heart failure, you know, that that concept of insight into like, what does this mean? Right. Like, what are my decisions? And if I make this choice, you know, is it a, is it a good choice or could it be a, a potentially a negative choice um, is big. Um, and then I think for the clients, if they are, if their, their insight and their judgment, if that is impaired as a result of, of dementia, for an example, a brain injury, really working with their caregivers and trying to set up their environment in a way to keep them safe and to keep them functional if they lack that piece um, of the functional puzzle. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if a client is uh, lacking some insight, you said that there would be a lot of client education involved. But my question is, how big of a role does the family play in neuro rehab? Huge. Um, mm -hmm. For, for many, many reasons. We talked about the system. Yeah. Um, right. And sometimes the system says you only get two weeks of rehab when you might need more than that. Right. Um, so if someone is going to be discharged home and they're not back to baseline and they may have new needs, whether it's hands-on care, adaptive equipment, you know, you name it, who's there to support that, that person? Um, you know, family oftentimes are the ones who step in to provide some of that care. Yeah. Um, you know, from a psychosocial perspective, that social connectedness piece, if someone has supports and people that they can lean on, that plays a huge role in their emotional um, recovery after something traumatic and life-changing has happened. Um, right, you need you know, a support system. And, and I, everyone does, you know, um, no matter what life is throwing at us. But I think that we often think of the family when we think of pediatric care, like, yes, you're going to have to work with the parents. But for older adults, it's maybe you're working with their children, their adult children, or you're working with um, their spouse, or you're working with their nieces, their nephews, you know, whoever it might be, um, getting a sense of who, who is that person's support system, what are they going to need to know, you know, to help keep this person safe and, and functional. Um, that's big. 
um, that's big. Yeah. So I think we're down to our last question here. Oh my Um, goodness, it's going by so fast. I know, I know. Um, well, we can say, we can keep going. <laughs> um, so how does the treatment look different, uh, between someone that's experienced a sudden event, like an accident or something like that, or versus someone that whose brain injury was gradual, or maybe degenerative, how would that, the treatment look different? Um, so I think if it's a sudden event, um, well, both are life-changing diagnoses, no no, no matter what. Um, I think if it's a sudden event, um, you know, and life does a complete 180, that's different. Sometimes the neurodegenerative, they creep up. So the, the initial symptoms may not be debilitating, but we know based on the condition, what the future looks like. Um, so I think it changes our approach a little bit. If it's a brand new stroke that say came unexpectedly um you know our focus is going to be to try to restore as much as we can like let's try to get back to that baseline as much as we can and we either get there or we don't um sometimes we get there other times we recognize you know what maybe we need to think about compensating and and we're not seeing what we need but we can approach it from a different angle and still help you be independent um, so I think that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with your neurodegenerative, you know that going back to baseline is not an is not an option, um, and that remediation per se isn't isn't the approach that you should be taking. So, if anything, it's it's maximizing what they have and also trying to think one step ahead and plan for the future, knowing that the future is going to involve a functional decline. You know, maybe it means yeah. that the client is going to need more ADL care, maybe they may need a wheelchair versus being able to get up and and walk. Um, You know, thinking about the long terms in terms of like a home setup. Mm -hmm. If we know this person may need a wheelchair down the road, is their home accessible? You know, starting to think about that. Um, I think the psychosocial piece, that mental Mm -hmm. health piece that's so important to us it's it's always going to be there and it's kind of similar and that, you know, like this happened to you and this was, this was awful, you know, like that empathy that we bring. Um, and also the, the element of, you know, how, how much of a, a cheerleader are we, you know, to try to boost their spirits versus kind of giving it to them straight, meeting them where they are. And part of that is every client is a little bit different. Um, some need that, that uplifting cheerleader type presence and others are like, cut it out, you know, like, yeah, right. Tell, Help me you check know, the boxes. Be, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let's do um, it. Yeah. Yeah. But, and there's, there's a lot of overlap too. I think the biggest thing is the expectations. Like if it's a brand new event and we think that we could get back to baseline, we're going to push for that. Um, whereas if we know that baseline is going to slip away, then that's a different a different approach. But the actual interventions could look very similar yeah. sometimes. Um right depending on the client's needs. Um, it's just, we, ex- we hope that one client will continue to improve in function and for the other type of client that we can maintain as long as possible and then try to help it. We know that the decline will happen, but try to, to make the decline manageable and right. keep everyone prepared. So going back to families and education and, right. you know, that's, what I was that's huge. Say, yeah. That's a huge part of, 
of this is this is not you know in six months from now this is not going away right. um, where for some six months after a stroke they have they may have very little residual deficit depending on right. where the stroke yeah. was and you know their their other medical needs and, and things like that awesome all right Thanks. sip you have any questions <laughs> I have one question going back to and maybe it maybe it applies to neuro too but like for for older adults and COVID, and I know we were talking about like what's the role of OT in helping with like loneliness and social isolation, but are there anything that like, anything that you've seen in your experience, again, either with older adults or neuro, that'll really help just people, like tips for people to like uh, combat that, you know, or like prevent that sensation of being lonely or socially isolated? Any like, just kind of takeaways for the the public. So I I think that especially today, mm -hmm. and I keep referencing COVID, but it really did change the it game did. for social it's, participation. It's a huge part of like um, a lived context we're all going through right now. You know, there's yes, no, yeah. And and I think today there's so many more virtual opportunities for those who you know, who, who need yeah. them. I think as things start to open up, you know, and and even if people are hesitant to jump back into the live interactions. I think there's been such a push to create and to broadcast like virtual museum tours. Like you could watch a virtual Broadway show, um, you know, like Zoom events. But a, a big thing for older adults is that technology piece. I think the older adults of today, they're, they're a mix of people that, that accept the technology and who, who use it and who mastered it. There are some who, who accept it, but don't know how to begin. Mm -hmm. So that's another area for OT, Absolutely. I feel like, to help connect people. Um, and then there's the, the bunch that are like, I'm not, like, that's not for me. Like, I don't want any part of that. Yeah. Um, and I think as our, my generation, your generation, you know, like, as we age, we may not see older adults with this tech divide down the road because we're all yeah. so used to technology. Um, but I think there is a lot more virtual offerings that are out there. So at the very least, we could be talking to, you know, the older adults about how, how are, what technology skills do you have? Are you interested in learning more? You know, do you have a cell phone? Do you have a laptop? Do you have an iPad? Cause not everyone does, but, um, and to show them like, this is how you could attend church services virtually, or this is how you could, you know, explore a local zoo um, or something that interests you. This is how you could maybe take an online class. Um, and then I think moving forward as things become, my hope is that maybe we won't go back to normal, quote unquote, but as we find our new normal, um, that we as OTs continue to incorporate this into our work with our clients, that we're asking about it in our occupational profiles, that, you know, when we're talking to clients about their goals, I think sometimes, again, the system pigeonholes yep. us into focusing on ADLs, but the bigger, you know, we, we, we want to be thinking about that socialization piece and, and how we can help people stay connected be, because of right. anything that they've gone through cognitively, physically. Um, so keeping that, you know, I just read a quote the other day and it basically said engagement in, you know, physical, mental and cognitive activity is linked with um, physical, 
cognitive and social activity is linked to productive aging. Yeah. And I think everyone gets it that it's like the physical and the cognitive, like, yeah, like that's well established, right. but I don't think everyone grasps the social piece. Yeah. Um, so and my hope would making be making sure like, that we're touching. Go ahead, finish your sentence. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, uh, my hope would be that we touch upon it um, and, and are, are prioritizing it. And I was just going to say, like, if as society does start to change, it's like you really do need this technology to have that social engagement, like, then there needs to be some kind of resources so that everyone can access it equally. Because right now there's a major divide, you know, in terms of oh, totally. resources like that. Um, and, and yeah, especially since it's so important. And I think even as things start to open up and we see more live events happening, most of them are advertised online. Yes. So like just the ability to access and look up like what's happening because I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how often things are happening in the mail or that flyers right. are being posted. Yeah. A lot of it is online. So even if the individual wants to be out with people and not in a virtual event, having that ability to access and know how to find yeah. whatever information they're looking Absolutely. for. And this is not just for social participation. Right. This could be for, you know, health management, all of Absolutely. that. Um, and then I think my other thought would just be for, for OTs to be working across the continuum, whether it's in the community, in a facility, to, to look at what programs are you offering and are you helping to facilitate relationship building yeah. and socialization? Because um, I think that we, like as you said, Val, with your experience in your 501, we bring that perspective and not everyone does. Like if they're planning a bingo or if they're planning, you know, a, an arts or activity group, it may just be, here's your stuff, watch me, follow along, and then leave. And there's no opportunity to talk. And I think we as OTs can build that in and we can, you know, embed some of those questions and, and get people to share. And so I think that it's an untapped area for Absolutely. us to to not necessarily reinvent the wheel, but to shine up the wheel. To look at the wheel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And make it a more social wheel. Yeah. Marley yeah. Cole talked yeah, about that. Absolutely. I don't know if you caught that episode, but just that like humans are social learners, you know, and that's such a big piece of learning is like not just somebody in a position of like power teaching you what to do, you know, that it's like watching your peers like and see how they experiment and trying new things and kind of modeling. And so, and that feeds in with that, that research you were talking about too, is that that social piece is so important for, for cognitive um, well-being. Yeah. And I think, and transitions. Yeah. I mean, for older adults, if yeah. they are transitioning out of their community, mm -hmm. you know, out of their home and into a facility, that's a huge, oh just like going to college or any other life transition, yeah. that's a major transition. Um, and being able to support them and help them feel welcomed and help them make some connections, that can make the world of Absolutely. difference in their experience you know, in that facility, which affects their physical and mental health. And then it, it just snowballs from there. Um, yeah. Oh, the, I'm sitting here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Transitions, yeah. client-centered treatment, the importance of the family. Like these things are all just inherent in the practice of OT, no matter what area you're in. Yeah. And I think in some areas, it's, it's definitely more mm, at the forefront, sure. but in others, like we can, we can push it to the forefront yeah. where it may not have been. Yeah. Um, 
So, so yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see, you know, I love our profession so much Mm -hmm, and I I think that we have such great potential in so many ways and this Mm -hmm. is just one of them, but I'm excited to see how we can embrace this occupation a little bit more and, um, really facilitate it for, for older adults and and for people of all ages. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. It's been so much fun. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Yeah, of course. It's been a pleasure. I have one last question. I wanted to ask about your pup. Ooh. Oh gosh, he, I saw him um, sitting so nicely back there. <laughs> yeah, he he's he's laying on the landing over here. He's um, a labradoodle. Aww. Um, his name is Duncan, Aww. and doodles are the best. They are. He's eight. Oh, um, he is the best big brother. I have two little mm-hmm. girls, and they yeah. they dress him up. They hang on him. You know, they're in his face. <laughs> yeah. They're they're brushing his teeth, and you know, and he's just. He's very gentle, very smart. Oh, I love him. Um, but I'm his person. Yeah. So when Aww. I'm working from home, he's usually like on the couch mm-hmm. or, or right. Sometimes he snores so loud that like, students <laughs> can hear it through the Zoom. <laughs> um, but funny. yeah. Oh, good. Life yeah. is better with a pet. Absolutely. That's for sure. My cat's right Absolutely. back there. In, exactly. In anyway. Love it. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Mm-hmm. Thank, yeah, thank you. you so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. In the context of limitations of best practice based on reimbursement structures, we mentioned Kathy McNulty's work as a feral occupational therapist, which she defines as, quote, a practitioner who has worked within statutory services but now works independently in the community, end quote. In her recent piece in the World Federation of Occupational Therapists Bulletin, she reports that this term describes, quote, not only the feelings of being cut adrift and without support, but also the freedom to practice in ways that are closer to the foundations of occupational therapy. Her article can be found in the spring 2021 issue of the World Federation of Occupational Therapists Bulletin, and we hope to have her on the podcast really soon to talk to her about it. Also, just a quick little update on my study habits in terms of the NBCOT since our last midterm episode. I've now taken a pretest just to kind of get a baseline for where I'm at. Um, did not do too hot, but did better than I thought. So um, then I went into starting to outline a study plan just so I can outline what I'm going to do every day for the next couple of weeks in preparation. And then in terms of my final project, I've now gotten to interview two OTs that are working in the fields that I'm most interested in. And I was already able to make some connections between some of the insightful things that I learned from both of them. So stay tuned for our last episode to hear about all the updates from both of these projects. Check out our social media at Occupod, that's O-C-C-Y-O-U-P-O-D on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, or on our website at www.occupyyourselfpod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next Thursday, and don't forget to occupy yourself.